The reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Thank you very much for your kind invitation to join you again this Tuesday. Please keep that passage open in front of you. And uh, James has already prayed for us. It's been said, hasn't it, that the closest that most of us get to creative fiction is when it comes to writing our CVs. Uh, I don't know if you can uh, relate to that. Uh, One man who certainly could was Hugh Gallagher. Uh, A while ago I read his application form for New York University. In that uh, classic final box that asked him to add anything else he thought necessary that might assist his application, here's what Hugh Gallagher wrote. I'm a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations in my lunch break, thus making them more energy efficient. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I'm an expert in bricklaying, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Fashion critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I performed several covert operations for the CIA. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life but forgot to write it down. (laughs) I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've I've played Hamlet, performed open-heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. I will be 18 years old next month. (laughs) I wonder if you'd give Hugh Gallagher a place if he he applied uh, to uh, university, if he applied to join your team. Uh, We can see why he did it, can't we? His application would have jumped to the top of the pile. It would have stood out a mile from all those other applications. And it's a tough world out there. It's dog-eat-dog. As the influential thinker Charles Handy put it, uh, the motto of employers in the 21st century seems to be Don't count on us. Uh, Count on yourselves. Uh, We'll only help if we can. Now that might be received wisdom for surviving life in the Big Apple or the Big Smoke, but what about life in the ever after? Is that the way to get into God's good books? To rely on ourselves? To have a strong spiritual CV? It's what many people seem to think today. It's one of those urban myths that does the rounds. God really likes religious people. 
Well, getting into God's good books was something that the Lord Jesus found himself talking about uh, quite a lot. He was also an influential thinker. He's influenced billions down the years. But he's also offended many people as well. And the funny thing is, we discover that Jesus often offends those people we would most expect him to get on with. The religious types. The good people. And the story that Jesus tells in today's passage is one of the most offensive for some. At verse 9, we see the story's dedication. Not notice to Aunt Agatha for all her help in the creative process, but instead to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. What's he going on about? Well, being righteous was all about getting into God's good books. Having righteousness was about being good enough for God. So straight away we see that the stakes couldn't be any higher today. Jesus says, understanding this short parable will help us to understand the difference between being accepted and rejected by God. So what was Jesus' received wisdom? Well, notice he tells a story about two men who do two things. They go to the temple to pray and then they go home again. Uh, nothing earth-shattering there. Corporate prayer was a daily, uh, a daily event in the temple. It would appear innocuous. It would seem insignificant. But notice the sting in the tail. It's there in the very last verse, isn't it? Notice it was the tax collector who went home in God's good books and not the Pharisee. Why? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Sounds at first glance like the sort of thing we might find in one of those fortune cookies in the Chinese restaurant. Uh, But if you read the whole of chapters 18 and 19, you'd see it's not just a corny cliché. We'd meet a range of people in those two chapters. We'd see some who exalt themselves before God and are humbled by Jesus uh, as a result and excluded from God's kingdom. And we'd meet some people who humble themselves before God are exalted, raised up by Jesus, and included in God's kingdom. And right in the middle of those chapters, halfway through chapter 18, we discover Jesus predicting his own death and resurrection in the same kind of language as verse 14. He he says he will face a humiliating death and then be exalted three days later when he rises from the grave. So as we come to the the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's as if Jesus is taking extremes from society and holding them up to us as if to say, where do we fit in? Who do we relate to? There's an epitome of religion and an epitome of wickedness. How do we think we'll get to God's good books? Now notice two shocks. Here's the first one. Notice God rejects the man who can do no right. Verse 10, two men went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee. Now my guess is, if we've ever heard the phrase Pharisee before, we're already prejudiced. If we know anything about the Bible, we know that the good Samaritan, he was a good guy, and we don't want anything to do with the Pharisees. We know what we mean, don't we, when we call someone Pharisaical, and it's not a compliment. It seems, doesn't it, to suggest they're smug and superior. We're already prejudiced when we discover that one of them is a Pharisee. But we mustn't jump to that conclusion. 
Because back in the first century, back in Jesus' day, we couldn't have been further from the truth. The Pharisees were the good guys. They were very impressive. Let's think about what he would have been like as a man. First, he would have been a churchman. If he worked here in the Palace of Westminster, he'd have been here every single Tuesday lunchtime. He wouldn't have been, he'd have been regular as clockwork, shaking James and, and Claire's hands as he came in. He'd have sat in the same seat, probably, week after week after week. He'd have been a churchman. Uh, he'd also have been a Bible man. He'd, he'd have read the Bible and memorised the Bible. He'd probably have one of those enormous black leather Bibles with tabs down the side. He'd have underlined and highlighted passages. If it fell open on the tube, you'd have thought to yourself, wow, this is a holy man. He was also a moral man. Verse 11, he wasn't into extortion or theft. He wouldn't have done well in my old profession. He wouldn't have been a good lawyer. And notice also he wasn't unjust or an adulterer. He wouldn't have made, I was going to say, he wouldn't have made a good MP, that's too rude. He wouldn't have made a good footballer, let's say. Do you see, you could trust this man with both your property and your wife. He's somebody we would have loved to have as a neighbour, loved to have as a boss. And he was a religious man. Verse 12 tells us he did far more than the Jewish law required. He was into bonus points religion. Do you see, far from being a good, uh, a bad guy, the Pharisee uh, was a good guy. He was one of the very best of men, a man who could do no wrong. How do you feel about him now? Now, that we've, Do you feel yourself murmuring with approval? He'd fit in rather well to my friendship circle. He'd do rather well in our party or something like that. Well, let's be careful. Because we need to spot his two fatal flaws. At flaw number one, he regarded himself as righteous. Verse 11, he makes a big show of coming into the temple for the time of corporate prayer after the daily sacrifices had been offered. You see, unlike the prophet Isaiah, who when he encountered God cried, Woe is me! Unlike the apostle Peter or John, who fell on their faces when they encountered God in Christ, this man strolls into God's presence, head held high, chest puffed out. Notice how many times we're told he says I in verses 11 and 12 as he lists his goodness. He fasts twice a week when the Old Testament said you only had to fast once a year. He gives a tithe of all that he gets, not just a tenth of his income. Sounds like real religious diligence, doesn't it? 104 times more fasting than was required by the Old Testament law. But do you see the danger? The great danger he faced is that instead of seeing himself as a debtor before God, it would be very easy for the Pharisee to assume that God must be in his debt. He was proud of his achievements. He proudly said, the parable suggests, he lacks any humility before God. He's like little Jack Horner, sat in the corner, saying, what a good boy am I. And this is the danger with all religion, ultimately. It is the danger of spiritual pride. Proud people can be such a pain, can't they? Samuel Butler famously wrote of two very self-centred people, Mr and Mrs Carlyle. He wrote, how good of God to cause Carlyle and Mrs Carlyle to marry one another. And therefore make two people miserable instead of four. 
But of course, listing our own goodness like the Pharisee does here, it's actually just a classic way of covering up for the guilt that we feel within our lives. He's like the man who visits the GP, who's quick to tell him how his eyes and ears have never been healthier, how his hands and his feet have never been in better shape, all the while oblivious to the tumour growing in his brain. This man sees himself as righteous. He's confident. He's almost complacent about his own righteousness. And that leads to a second flaw. Notice verse 11, uh, verse 9, he looks down on others with contempt. Verse 11, the Pharisee stands by himself. He doesn't want to mix with the riffraff. He doesn't want to spoil his pristine ceremonial purity uh, through contact with lesser mortals. And he's quick to say what he doesn't do, isn't he? Verse 11, he's not ungodly or immoral. Do you see, the Pharisee is into negative obedience. He's into legalistic obedience. And also notice he's into comparative obedience, verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. He's like the driver pulled over for speeding, isn't he? Who quickly tells the policeman that he's not a murderer. Or he's like the, uh, uh, the banker who fiddles his taxes while moaning about the benefit sheets. Or dare I say like the MP who calls for rioters to be flogged while airbrushing his university life as regularly trashing at every bar in town. Do you see negative obedience, legalistic obedience, comparative obedience? But of course the, the real issue isn't whether or not I'm better than you. Or whether or not you're better than the person sitting next to you. The ultimate issue is what are we like compared to God? Do you see how the Pharisee uses all of those things to mask his own spiritual condition before God? He might feel good about himself. He might feel proud. But please notice verse 14. His feelings are no guide to the condition of his soul. Well, what about us? Can we see ourselves, anything of ourselves in this Pharisee and in his prayer? We've got to do that self-examination, don't we, in the light of verse 14. Because it was the tax collector and not the Pharisee, not the model citizen, who went home justified. Who went home right with God. Who went home in God's good books. Isn't that shocking? And if it is shocking, I take it it's because deep down we tend to think God likes religious people. The good people go to heaven. And Jesus comes along straight out of the Ella Fitzgerald playbook and he says it ain't necessarily so. Why? Well, because the Pharisee, verse 9, is confident of his own righteousness. He's a model of someone, verse 14, who exalts himself before God. So I guess this could be a wake-up call to us. And here's the shock. It could be a wake-up call to us if we're good, if we're moral and religious. Because Jesus seems to be saying those very things could keep us out of the kingdom of God. Our morality, our respectability, our religiosity may be the very things that exclude us from being in God's kingdom. They're not the right way to God. And the Lord loves us enough to warn us that God rejects the man who can do no wrong. Well, if that isn't the right way to God, what is the right way? 
And this is the second big shock, notice. God accepts the man who can do no right. At verse 13, enter, stage left, the tax collector. He would have been one of the most hated people in first century Palestine. Apologies to anyone who works in the treasury here. Uh, You may assume that not much has changed over the centuries. You see, in the first century, the Romans had franchised out the collecting of taxes. So before The Apprentice, uh, Lord Sugar and Donald Trump, before they came along, any budding entrepreneur without any scruples, without any sense of loyalty to his own people, could apply for the franchise to collect taxes. Uh, They were infamously greedy and corrupt, They were kind of crooks and collaborators with the occupying Roman enemy. Think of those World War II black and white movies with the the French provincial mayor lining his pockets while uh, grassing on the resistance, and you get something of the picture. It makes the comparison with this straight-laced Pharisee all the more shocking, doesn't it? Surely this tax collector can't be accepted by God. But notice, will you, he can be, because nobody recognises his unworthiness more than the tax collector. Verse 13, he can't even lift his eyes to God. Head bowed, he beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He can't be more different to the Pharisee, can he? The tax collector knows he's got nothing to bring to God. He knows he's broken God's law. He knows he can't keep God's law. He sees the truth about himself. He sees that he's a sinner, a rebel before God. But notice he also sees the truth about God. I suspect as the smoke was lifting from the sacrifices that had just taken place before the time of corporate prayer, he recognises that God is merciful, that God doesn't treat us as we deserve. Why not? I take it that's why the prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection comes right in the middle of these two chapters. God doesn't give us what we deserve because Christ died that humiliating, brutal death that we deserved. The tax collector could do no right, but Christ died for people who recognise that. It's as if Christ brings his perfect CV and holds it out saying, give me your grubby CV and let me swap my CV for yours. The tax collector pleaded for God's mercy, and the miracle is he found it. His name was written in God's good books, not because he earned it, but because Jesus gave it. How does the old hymn put it? Not the labours of my hands can fulfil the Lord's Lord's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. That it's possible, because and only because of the cross of Christ, it's possible for any of us to be in God's good books. And to be safe for all eternity. So as we conclude, what about us? Do we sense that we're more like the Pharisee or more like the tax collector? What are we trusting in to get us into God's good books? Are we seeking righteousness like the Pharisee, built on our own religious reputation and our moral achievements? 
If we are, then we need to hear the Lord's loving warning. God rejects those who think they can do no wrong. Or or are we relying on God's mercy through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, however tentatively, hear the Lord's wonderful welcome. God accepts those who realise they can do no right. It is great news. It is momentous news for us here this lunchtime, for the city of London in which we work, and for this great nation. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for taking us right to the heart of the Christian faith, reminding us that nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we cling. Please strip away all our pride and self-sufficiency. Please help us to depend all the more on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord.